everyone, this is April Hansen with Arkansas Catholic Asks. It's a podcast produced by the staff of the Arkansas Catholic Newspaper. We interview newsmakers in the church on various faith topics that matter most to you. And this is the first in a three-part series on immigration, where we're going to let you hear the voices of DACA recipients and people that are bridging the divides between the Hispanic and Anglo communities. And it's one thing to talk about the nuts and bolts of immigration, but listening to people whose families have made sacrifices to be in the United States and the struggles they face really brings the humanity to it all beyond the discourse. And that's really what we hope to do with this series. So I'm very excited about our guest today. Um, She is Maria Garcia. She's a 22-year-old who teaches at St. Teresa's School in Little Rock. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, we always ask a fun icebreaker question. So tell me, first off, what do you like to do for fun? I like to draw. I haven't done it in a long time. Honestly, now I just watch TV. Mm -hmm. That's the only (laughs) thing that I do. That sounds kind of boring. No, it's not not at all. What kind of, um, what's your favorite TV show? Uh, I love The Big Bang Theory. Um, I started watching uh, the the Superstore. I think. Oh, that's a great one. <laughs> yeah, I love it, uh, especially because it has a female Hispanic, uh, you know, uh, maker, uh, producer. There we go. Um, she she's awesome, and so it was just like yay. <laughs> so getting out there. Yeah, that's so awesome. Well, and that's probably good that you have a show like that since Big Bang Theory ended, unfortunately. It's yeah. kind of going to fill that void. <laughs> yeah, I'm really upset about that. Yeah. But I mean, I just watch other shows too, and it, it just depends on <laughs> what I feel like watching. I have series that I start and then don't finish and then come back to it like months later and then go back to them when yeah. I'm bored. Absolutely. I'm the same way. Um, what are some of the things you like to draw? I like to draw a lot of crosses with roses. That's always something that I've always liked to do ever since I was in middle school. I have no idea why, but uh, I'm not very creative as far as like me saying something and, oh, just like trying to draw it out of nowhere. I'm more of like, I'll see something and then connect the dots. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I can see this and I want to draw this. So I'll just like pick up a little clip art on Google and then I'll start drawing and it's like really really peaceful so I sometimes think about my thoughts and um like what I really want to do or if I'm like upset why I'm upset or if I want to talk to God you know I do that and it's really really peaceful and calming and just really really helps me a lot but I don't know why both of those together they I mean both of them are beautiful but Mm -hmm. I don't know why together yeah well that sounds really awesome um Well, I'm particularly excited to chat with you today because I was able to hear you speak about your personal immigration story during the Catholic Day of Action for our immigrant brothers and sisters this summer, and that was held at St. John Center here in Little Rock, and it was very powerful. You did such an amazing job, (laughs) and uh, I believe it's the first time you've spoken so publicly about your story, right? Yes. So usually I've talked to people about it. It's been like... I'll talk to one person, and I won't give them the entire story. I'll just give them bits and pieces. But that one was, like, mostly – I mean, I did get nervous. So I, I started just, like, rambling, and I was just like, okay, I'm going too, too far. I'm not going enough. Like, I don't know where I'm going. What am I saying? Uh, but, yeah, uh, it was really the first time that I had talked about it, and it was in front of a lot of um, – Anglos and just a lot of people that weren't Hispanic. So it was 
it was interesting. It was scary. And uh, it, it was a different feeling. So. Well, a lot of people were touched by it. I mean, I saw a lot of people crying. I was certainly teared up. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was just, it was very powerful. Um, so you came to the United States when you were five years old, which was in September 2002, um, with your mother to reunite with your father. Tell me where exactly you are from in Mexico. So I'm from Tezutlan, Puebla. Okay, so kind of talk about where that's at exactly. So that is close to Veracruz, which is on the coast. Um, it's by uh, the Gulf of Mexico. So it's it's like Veracruz on, on the Gulf, and then Puebla is right next to it. And um, Mexico City is next to that state. And so Puebla is the actual state. And in Tezutlan, it's only like 20 minutes away from, from Veracruz. And, um, and from Puebla to go to Mexico city, it was probably like around three to four hours. So it was actually closer to go to the other side, mm -hmm. um, than it was to go to Mexico city. Okay. So that, that's pretty much what I know. kind of want to take a minute to, um, talk a little bit about, you know, what it means to, you know, get a visa and everything. Because one of the things that's brought up when people talk about undocumented immigrants is that people need to get in line or come legally. But what I've learned really in discussing this topic with immigration experts is there's really no such thing as a line. And that's really part of the problem. So applying for asylum when you reach the border is not illegal. And in terms of applying for a visa, um, Bishop Taylor recently broke it down during his talk on immigration to Pox Christi, Little Rock in July. So I want to talk a little bit about that real quick. So in his 2008 pastoral letter, uh, which is called The Human Rights of Immigrants, which is really still relevant today, even though it was written in 2008, he pointed out how per year, 25,620 visas are available to any country, no matter their stability, for immigration to the United States. So the letter detailed the timeline people in certain countries had been waiting for a visa, including Mexico. So for example, in 2008, the U.S. was reviewing applications for first preference family-sponsored visas in Mexico. So that's unmarried sons and daughters of U.S. citizens from September 8th, 1992. So let me just say that again. In 2008, they were, referring, or were reviewing applications from this particular visa from 1992. So in July of 2019, the U.S. was reviewing applications from the same visa from August 1st, 1996. So there's several types of visas, but the bottom line is in 11 years, it only advanced four years. Mm -hmm. So people that are trying to flee threats of violence or extreme poverty, waiting 23 years is just not an option. So I really want our listeners just real quick to take a minute, just imagine yourself in this situation, you know, either in extreme poverty. I mean, I know it's hard to even fathom that, especially, you know, in the United States where there are a lot of people that have, you know, we just, we're a very blessed country in the fact that we have a lot of privileges, but let's just think for a moment, if your family was struggling financially and you would do anything for them. And let's just talk about the threats too. If your child was threatened with murder or rape, I mean, what, if your family was starving, what would you do? Would you wait 23 years? And that's really what it boils down to. So, Maria, I want to ask you, you know, what do you typically say to people when they say people from other countries need to get in line or come legally? When I was younger, I, I didn't want to talk about it 
Um, as I got older, it was more of like, I was mad. I'm like, don't even say that. Now I'm, I've been able to get to a point where I'm not going to be mad. I can answer this a more civil way. So I, I, I just tell them it's not a possibility. I mean, I just tell them sometimes my experience because they, they don't understand it. They're like, but there's visas. There's, you know, why don't you just become a citizen? It's so easy. You just take a test. I'm like, you can't take a test without doing something in order. Like, you have to apply for something first. You have to fit, you know, all the boxes before you're even, you know, reviewed. And so that it's so much. And it and there, like you said, there's many visas. So... It's not just one. And if you don't fit one, you might fit the other. But then that one has an exception or that one doesn't. Or you have to be unmarried. Or if you are married, that takes you off. And so, you know, there's just so much going on. And, and it's not the reality. Like, you can't just say, hey, you know, I'm going to wake up and I know of this country that's awesome and will give me a better life. The only thing I have to do is just apply for it and I'll get the visa instantly. That's not how it comes. You know, it takes years before you can get something like you said. They were taking 23 years, mm -hmm. you know. And so that's not, you know, they don't, if they're thinking of I have to pay bills and or my child is, you know, needs you know, uh, a surgery or something and it needs to be done now. I'm not going to wait 23 years to see if it'll happen then. I'm going to try to do my best to try to figure out a possibility to either get money or have a loan or someone, know someone that will, will let me borrow it. If not, I have to find my way to a different country that will open their arms or a family that will or I will pay out the loan somehow, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's not as easy as people think. It's, you have, there's a process. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about your journey across the border. Because mm -hmm. you mentioned that, you know, when people mention about, you know, why don't they just come, you know, legally mm -hmm. and everything, you mentioned that you do sometimes share your story. So yeah. let's talk about specifically what you remember. And I know you were five years old, so mm -hmm. that's so young. And But there are things that have stuck out in your memory. Yeah. So tell me what are some specifics that you remember and kind of, you know, if you remember how long it took, just moments, even sounds, smells, anything that comes to your mind when you think back on that journey. My mom had to knock me out with um, a sleeping pill. So we came with uh, illegal um, paperwork like a lot of people do. And so we had a fake, uh, fake um, ID uh, identification. And so when we, I knew I was in a car and my mom was in the front and the coyote was driving. And so that was one part. I didn't know until like a couple of years ago that that there was um, there's more than just one just like going over the border or driving to the border. And then you go. There's so much more than that. You have to go through different um, stages almost. So like the stage one was where we we go and we drive and uh, I was knocked out, and then we get to the actual um, officer, and, you know, they're asking, like, are you a U.S. citizen? And so I'm, so the coyote was like, yes, and here's my paperwork, here's my, my identification. And when that's happening, I start waking up 
So it was that they gave me the medicine too early. And so I was waking up and my mom and the guy were holding hands because they were a couple as far as, you know, coming over here. And so I was waking up and I was like, why are you holding his hand? Why are you not? What? Like, I, I just knew it was wrong. I was like, why are you doing that? My dad, like, what are you doing? Oh, no. And so my mom was just like, shut up. Go to sleep. Go, like, fall asleep. Close your eyes. Whatever you do, just stop talking. Wow. And so I'm from now she laughs about it, but she was like, if she had said more, I would have put my entire family in danger. And that sounds so bad. But oh I'm I'm glad nothing happened. But we we passed that one. And after that, I don't remember anything besides having to cross, I think, a river or a pond or something. Mm-hmm. So we crossed that, and we're on a little boat, and um, there were some people in the water because, you know, they were pushing the boat, and we had to be very careful and very quiet. It was maybe around six or seven because it wasn't, it wasn't in the day, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't so dark. Evening. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I think it was, like, more around six or seven, and all I could think of was, I hope there's no sharks here. The, the guy's feet are inside, you know, and I'm just like scared. I was like, please, let, I don't want sharks. I don't want to die. And I'm just like, I, I don't, now that I think about it, I'm like, how did I even know about sharks? I mean, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. fears pop up, you know, in those situations, you know, yeah. in, in your mind, especially as a young, you know, yeah. kid, it's like you just think about that with water. And obviously, this was a scary experience, I yeah. would assume. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my mom, the only thing my mom could do. Cause she knew I was scared. I was just like, I don't, I don't want to be here. Let's just go back home. Uh, she was just say, it's okay. You know, they're just going to take us to this place and then everything's going to be fine. And they would do that again. And my mom would tell me that over and over again. I was like, but I don't want these people to die. And I don't want a shark. <laughs> so I think about it and it's so cute. Cause you know, little kids are innocent. Um, but after that, we got to a point where there was dirt and grass and I don't remember exactly where it was at, but I, from what I I'm thinking and what I know about, um, you know, geography and location. Mm-hmm. I think we did hit like a, a, a piece of the desert and not a very big piece, but I knew it was, it was dry and it was hot and there is, there wasn't really trees there, you know, like green and beautiful trees and big, they're more like branches, just dead. And so, um, I remember doing that, and I think that day we uh, we ended up staying at somebody's house. So it was like a little safe house. Um, if not, we just I just don't remember that part. Um, but after that, I do remember the next day uh, we were walking through that bit of desert that I, that I think it was, and um, I was I had my little beanie, and it was a. Uh, Winnie the Pooh penny, uh, beanie. And so um, it was just a, the cutest thing. And that's the only thing that I had that I would really remember and I was attached to. And that's the only thing I cared about at that moment. And, and so I'm guessing you did, really didn't bring a lot. Of no, things, no, no, no. So. We couldn't. And we didn't really have water. Uh, we didn't really bring food. My mom stuffed everything that she could in a little backpack, but it was more of food than clothes. So what... I left with that day in that car ride, I 
had for probably a couple of days. So that beanie was really the one thing that you had when you were in. mm -hmm. Yes. And so, and I think my mom says that my dad gave it to me. If not, he made it for me because he used to work at a, at a sewing company. And so my mom did too. And so my dad used to make a lot of my food, uh, a lot of my food, (laughs) a lot of my, uh, a lot of my clothes. And so I was really attached to anything my dad gave me. And so since I hadn't seen him, it just kind of fits the picture. And so I was really attached to it. And then uh, all I hear is like people running and I'm like, what is it? And people are starting to yell, la migra, la migra, which is, you know, immigration, ICE. And so uh, people are starting to run. Everybody's running everywhere. And my mom had me and she was pulling me, but I was five. I couldn't run really fast. And so there was a guy that was with us and he was crossing over and he, he took the, he, he just made the decision to say, Hey, let me get your daughter. I'll put her on my back and we'll run as fast as, as fast as we can. And so, um, my mom was like, but what if you get caught? And he's like, this is your child, you know? You know, I'm not going to make your child get lost in the middle of nowhere, and especially you, you know. So he didn't know my mom or anything, but it was just a really nice um, gesture that he had done. Absolutely. And so, you know, we're running, and my beanie gets caught on a branch. And all I could tell my mom was like, no, mommy, no, come back. Like, please go back for my beanie. Like, agarrala, like, get it for me. And mom was like, we have to forget about that beanie. We have to go. We have to go. I'm sorry. One day we'll get it. You know, one day we will, but not right now. And so I was just like crying and crying. And um, the guy was like, if she really wants that beanie, I'll go back. Mom was like, no, you can't make that stupid decision. You can't do it. You know, you already you know, said that you would help me try to get my daughter, you know, by carrying her, you know, you are not going to go back. And so we just, we ran as fast as we could. And, um, I think from there, there was a safe house. And so we stayed there and we could hear the, you know, the footprints of people running. And so we knew it was either immigration. If not, we knew it was people trying to run for safety, but we were in that safe house for a couple of hours, if not for a couple of days. But that, and I want to just pause a minute because that story um, with the the beanie, you know, the mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh. I mean, that's to me that resonated so much when I heard you tell the story before mm-hmm. because it's heartbreaking. You know, anyone yeah. that has a you know child, especially like let's say they've left their blanket at a hotel, most yeah. parents are going to do you know um, <laughs> anything to try to get that yeah. back. But I mean, it's so heartbreaking when you can't. And mm-hmm. in this situation, obviously, you know, you were making this you know, very, you know, dangerous journey realistically mm-hmm. and not, you know, this was the one thing you had. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just tragic. Yeah. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah. So, I mean, I think about, about it today and I'm just like, you know, that beanie is probably somewhere. If not a bird took it, <laughs> if not another kid that probably needed that beanie has it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, it still breaks my heart um, when I talk about it because it's just, you know, I wouldn't wish it upon anybody to have that situation, especially being five. Um, but I think about it and I'm like, dang, I know that that beanie meant something to me and I couldn't have it. Um, but if somebody else has it, I wish that they at least appreciated it because it meant something to me and it might have brought them comfort because it was probably something that they had already seen or it would have been something that 
is warm, the only warmth that they could have. And so I think about it and it makes me sad, but then it's just like that beanie had to stay there because if not, I wouldn't be here. Absolutely. And so I do remember that part. And then I remember we went into a building after that. you know, I, I never knew anybody else. I don't know how we got to the U S and we went to a, a building and I knew we were there. And I think my mom gave the phone number to the lady. I remember it was a lady and we were there in the waiting room or wherever it was. And we're just waiting for my dad. And my dad had to, um, have somebody drive him all the way to, to Houston. So it was a really long time and a really long drive. And it was from point A to point B. But all I can remember is like, my dad had to come and pick me up. Uh, and that was like, yay, daddy's coming. Like, I finally get to see my dad after a long time, a couple of months. And so he comes and picks me up. And then after that, we were crying and we're happy. And then we drive away. And then that's the only thing I can remember. So I do want to back up for just mm -hmm. a minute because I think um, I would hope that a lot of people are kind of familiar with the term coyote since that's, you yes. know, obviously immigration. We talk about that a lot, but kind mm -hmm. of explain what a coyote is. So a coyote is a person who knows his way through borders, knows his way through tunnels, um, water, anything. So there are people that you pay money to, to smuggle you in to the U.S. illegally. And but that's so, such a big risk because yes. you don't really know who these people are. And there's mm -hmm. a lot that are not really trying to help you get to the U.S. or at least yeah. trying that they're not, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to think about it. Uh, but yeah, so they're the ones that you pay them a lot of money. And usually these people are people that were born here in the U.S. So it's like, huh, you know. Interesting. Yeah, it's very, very interesting because they, they get paid for smuggling you in here. And then if things don't go the way they plan, they don't give you your money back. They just, I'm sorry, you got caught. You know, I'll try again. And some of them will say, you know, we can use that as credit and you just have to pay me another $2,000 um, and I'll try to get you in again. But it's it's a risk every time. Uh, I know my, and there's different types of coyotes. So I know with ours, we had to do different things. My dad's coyote was straight desert. And so his was like, you pay me this much. We're going to try to get you over and but you're gonna have to cross the desert so bring as much as you can and it's gonna be a long time it's gonna be a long ride and so my dad went through the desert and he had to help somebody um because that person was dying and you know it's during in the desert it's it's hot it's dry you know it it's almost like burning and so my dad did talk to me a little bit about it. He doesn't talk about it much, but um, his was different. So these people try to smuggle you in the best way that they know and the safest route, I guess, but sometimes it's not the safest. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are some coyotes that, you know, aren't, that they try to make you believe that they're going to get you in here. And then there's like the whole sex trafficking or there's rape. And then, uh, like, for us, it was very dangerous because it was two women, you know, or a little girl and my mom. Right. And absolutely. so having that, it was just like, you know, something could happen. And even to this day, I always think about asking my mom, like, 
I know this is a hard topic, but did anything ever happen coming to the U.S.? But I never want to really ask her that because I know it's it's sad for her to think about having to. Oh, it's almost like reliving the entire situation all over again. So I don't ask her about it, but that's always on my mind. Like, did anything ever happen to you? Because uh, I, I want to know, you know. But I, I just don't say anything. I don't ask about it. It's always in the back of my mind. And I just let it go. Um, but there are people that I know that they have either made their, their daughters go, come with somebody who they thought they could trust. And those people took advantage of the girl or the wife or they killed her. You know, they sent her somewhere else. And so it's it's really tragic to think about. And it's traumatizing, honestly, Absolutely. that you have to make su- such a huge decision and then you don't know if it could go the right way or not, or you don't know that person. Do they really have the right intentions, or are they just going to use you and then throw you and never to find your family again? And that's something that I guess people don't really think about in terms of the human aspect of it is that people don't leave their country, you know, for no reason. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, you're taking not only a huge financial, you know, hit to pay someone to take you over, you know, if that's the route you go mm-hmm. or, you know, but you're also risking your life and just your body, just everything, yeah. you know, it's, it's a huge risk. Um, so tell me, how long have you been in Arkansas for? I've been here my entire life. I say my entire life, but I mean, obviously, I was in Mexico for five years. But I've been here, um, I'm 22, so that would put me at, what, um, 17 years? So you did come to Arkansas then? Yes. Okay. So right after Houston, straight to Arkansas, and I've been here ever since then. Been in Little Rock. That's my home. <laughs> <laughs> well, so how do you think um, this experience as an immigrant, you know, as a DACA recipient, but just kind of going back, you know, thinking about your trip across the border and just being in this country, you know, obviously mm-hmm. this is where you've spent your whole life, mm-hmm. really. I mean, mm-hmm. minus five years. So how has that affected you emotionally? Because I would imagine it would be pretty hard to be in this country much of you know, most of your whole life, Mm -hmm. but still not be considered a part of it by certain standards. Yeah. Um, I think about this a lot. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't really understand it. Um, so I know I did, it did affect me emotionally because, uh, I didn't have much. And so not only financially, but emotionally too, because since I didn't, ha- I was wearing the same clothes for like two weeks. My mom had to wash it over and over and over again because that's the only thing that we could afford. But, you know, kids bullied me for not being able to speak English, for not understanding, for not having what they had and living in a little small mobile home with all these other people. Like, people made fun of that. And it's so sad that they do that, but they did. And, you know, kids don't know any better, but, you know, what... You know, it's like whatever now. You know, I'm older. But, you know, I've constantly gotten bullied. Um, and there's been times in my life where I, I've i thought to myself, I don't want to be Mexican. You know, especially it was more of my teenage years. It was more on um, when I was in middle school. I thought about it a lot. I, I don't want to be Mexican. I don't want to be brown. I want to be white. I want to be fair skin. I want to be privileged because I'm having to constantly like almost for me it seems like I have to constantly knock down barriers that are put there for me and it makes me feel really really bad because I'm just like I was a five-year-old little girl I didn't do anything to anybody 
why am I having to suffer through this? You know, I, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't, you know, you know, I have never stolen anything from anybody. Why am I almost treated like a criminal for doing something that I didn't even do? It was my parents that made that decision, you know? And so it affects me every single day, especially now with the whole presidency going on. Um, and you know, the president, I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, <laughs> but I won't criticize him for it. Or at least publicly, I won't. I just keep it to myself. But it's got to be hard, though, to hear yeah. that kind of rhetoric. Yeah, know, and, and, and it's every day, honestly, because there's something, there's a statement out every day about immigration. And so it affects me and and affects the, the people that I'm around because I hang out with a lot of Hispanics. My life is around Hispanics. It's around my culture. It's around my people. And so the fact that they're going through all these things because, you know, they're Hispanic, too, and they're a target, you know, or... They, their parents were deported because, you know, they're Hispanics and they don't have papers. It affects me and it affects the children. And I know the way it affected me and how I'd never wanted to be anything. And I, I just broke down. And I mean, I have depression and I have anxiety and, um, and what we've talked about it in other articles too, that I, my depression is more suicidal. So my things, uh, were based on, you know, um, more of my family, and that's that's other things that went on being here. My family completely changed. So I sometimes blame the U.S. and coming here because my family was ripped apart, honestly, um, by that. Um, and I think about that, and, and I hate it. I just I feel like if we never came here, you know, my family would still be together. But then I also think about, oh, I'm here, and I have all these things I wouldn't have been able to have. Um, so it's, it's, it affects me every day and I feel sad and I feel angry sometimes. And then I feel like I'm doing so much. I pay my taxes, you know, I'm, I have you know, a steady job. Sometimes I've had to work four jobs in you know, in a week just to try to pay my bills. And, you know, I'm trying to be as responsible as I can, but then I hear people saying, oh, immigrants are, are bad you know, immigrants are rapists, immigrants are criminals. I hear all of that and I'm like, I'm an immigrant. I pay my taxes, I go to school, I graduated, I got a diploma, you know, I I work, I, you know, I volunteer at my church and I do all these things and that really makes me a criminal, you know, Absolutely. for doing something that even a U.S. person, you know, would do as well. Mm -hmm. Like, how, why is my color, you know, why should my color make a difference? Or why should my language make it seem like I'm less than somebody else, you know? So it's, it's, it's hard and it's infuriating. Well, and you know, you mentioned about, you know, barriers. Yeah. And so I want to talk about a barrier that really was put up around you uh, because you received your associate's degree in elementary education from Pulaski Technical College. Mm -hmm. And that happened in May, I believe. Yes. Correct? So, but when you went to transfer to the University of Arkansas Little Rock, you learned that because you are a DACA recipient, uh, you wouldn't be licensed to teach. Mm -hmm. So what was your initial response? 
Uh, and kind of explain what that means for you. Yeah. So, you know, uh, after I graduated, I was like, yay, I graduated, got my basics. I'm going to go somewhere. And this is what I really want. I want to be someone. And so I, I graduated. I graduated with honors. And I was really excited. And then I go and transfer. And they're like, oh, okay, you're DACA. Okay. Didn't think anything of it. And I even said, you know, I know something changed with, with um, some uh, some laws or some bills. And so I was like, something changed. And it was, you know, uh, DACA students would now be able to pay in-state tuition. They wouldn't have to pay uh, international. And so for me, that was awesome because I was like, I'm only going to be able to take two classes and only be able to afford that. And, you know, having two or three, to- uh, like, jobs, I was just like, oh, you know, I have to really save up my money. And so when I went, I I went and I talked to the lady and I said, hey, you know, this is what I have going on. This is what I want to do. Uh, what are my options? And, you know, she, she gave me my schedule, what it would look like. And I still had to do some immigration things on the portal. And then she calls me while I'm at work a couple of days later. And she's like, hey, we have a problem. And I was like, oh, what is it? And um, she's like, you have DACA, right? And I was like, yeah. She's like, you you aren't licensable. And I was like, wait, what? What does that mean? She's like, if you're DACA, that doesn't grant you permanent residence. So you won't be able to get your license in teaching. And I was like, okay, so do I have to go to another school? She was like, I mean, you can look at it, but you won't be able to to graduate. And I was like, wait, so I can't take the classes? She's like, you can take the classes if you want but you're not gonna be able to graduate. And I was like, but I'm confused. Like, what do I, what does that have to do with anything? Like graduation is one thing and getting your diploma is one thing and then applying for the, the license is different. She's like, well, at, at Euler, it's different. You go through, like your classes are built into where you take the, the praxis test for the license within your course. So if I'm not licensable, I can't even get my, degree. And that's only for for um, jobs that require licenses. So like, you know, nurses and doctors and teachers and, you know, even more. And we talked about a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, before we started recording in terms of the nursing, the nursing students. Yeah. And that just changed this past legislative session. Yeah. And it was, mm-hmm. yeah. And it was by a girl, I think her name is Rosa and I, I, I know her family. And so it was just really, uh, impressive to see somebody, a Hispanic change something <laughs> for, for DACA students. Cause she had been having a hard time trying to go to school for nursing and she had paid off her stuff and they're like, no, you can't, you can't get a license. And basically what this means mm-hmm. is that nursing students that were DACA are mm-hmm. now able to be licensed in the Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that was awesome. And I was thinking, well, you know, this happened for nursing. I thought that it meant for teachers too. And so I was talking to my boss about it. And that once I got that call, I shut down. And I was working with, uh, you know, I was, I was at work and I was with my boss. And I was like, what do I do? I've been working for this. I've paid, you know, probably about $15,000 on my entire basics, you know, like my two years of, you know, technical college, I've spent that much money because I had to pay it out, right? It wasn't like I could get a scholarship. And if I was, there's certain, you know, like 
like once again, you have to fill in the box and you have to fit those boxes. And most scholar, most DACA recipients are not able to receive scholarships. No, mm-hmm. and so or even if you can get a scholarship because you're DACA, you have to make sure that you're applying for the right one because some of them are for nursing, some of them are for teaching, and so it just depends on what you're doing. And so I broke down and my boss was like just hugging me and she's like, "I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry," and I was just like. What am I supposed to do? And so I had, after that, like, it's everything changed. And I was like, why is it that I have to go through these things? I've been here for 17 years, and I've been the best to my ability to be the best citizen, you know, without being considered a citizen. I've been trying to do my best, and yet, you know, my my state can't even give me a license, can't even give me a degree. And so... Despite having the education. Yeah, and so then I, I thought about it and I was like, well, what do I do? And so I did call back once I was more relaxed and I asked, I was like, well, can I get a degree in something else? And she said, yeah, you can. Um, but you, as long as it doesn't require a license. That's kind of in limbo at the moment because yeah. it's just kind of up in the air. But I yeah. think I know that you had mentioned that you're kind of hoping that the law changes. Yes. And so I, I was thinking of, because um, I saw the video of the girl that fit, uh, that, that tried to really change things for, for nursing students. And, and she did, and she got, you know, somewhere. And so it's almost like made me feel good and made me feel like now I need to do something about teaching because not a lot of people even knew about teaching. Like that was a possibility. They just knew that you would just take your courses and then, you know, you got your degree and then you would start teaching. Nobody ever told me, hey, you can't teach because you don't have this and that. And so when I saw that video and when I heard about it and I was just like, this is making, excuse me, this is making something in me to like, like spark up, like I have to do something. If it's not for for me, I have to do it for somebody else. You know? Just briefly, what is one thing that you'd like them to take away from everything you've said today? Um, I just want people to open their hearts and open their minds that not everybody is bad and not everybody um, is coming here because they they just want to. It's because they have a reason and their reason is higher than anything that they, it's more powerful than anything that they are or what they want to be, you know? And so I, I think about, well, if you were in danger, like April, if you were in danger, what would you do if you had kids? Would you do the same thing? Like, I want them to open their hearts and open their minds to thinking about that, that if you have your kids, if you have a family and, you know, you have to make that choice, you would do it. Even with like the Holocaust, you know, people fled, people are constantly fleeing from something. And I just want them to have open arms and open hearts and open minds to not close off to the idea of immigration is bad or what I know from immigration is this and that. But think about the stories, think about the actual people. Like, this is a person, this is a kid, this is a kid that's going through this. Like, do I really want to be that way? Do I really want to show hate to a two-year-old that didn't do anything to me? That can probably might be the person that helps me in the future, might make a difference, you know? So that's the only thing that I want. And if it if it's not by my story, by somebody else, to like talk to somebody and ask them 
And it's a very difficult situation and very um, difficult topic. But if you try to know more and like make yourself aware of things, you might be able to make a difference more than somebody who is closed minded, you know, and that is like that. And with that, that's a call to action for yeah. our listeners. You know, find someone in your parish that, you know, has an immigration story that's an immigrant and talk to them. Be open to that. Um, and of course, obviously, come back for our second and third installments of our immigration podcast series. Um, but again, Maria, thank you so much. And you know, we end all of our podcasts with a prayer relating to whatever topic we're discussing. And um, Maria, we've got a prayer for you to read um, regarding immigrants. So let's all pray together. Okay. Lord, we pray for the protection of all refugees, migrants, and displaced people in the world today. You experience the life of uh, of a migrant in the flight to Egypt when uh, Joseph and Mary fled their home to protect your life. Today, this phenomenon continues in a world that does not respect the vulnerable. Help us to respond to the needs of those people, our brothers and sisters. You told us that when we welcome the stranger, we welcome you, and that the reward of the assistance is not forgotten on the day of our judgment. We invoke the migrant family of Nazareth to protect those who migrate today. Keep them safe and bring them to the destinations with your guidance. Amen. Amen. And that was actually a beautiful prayer written by uh, Bishop Nicholas DiMarzio of the Bishop of Brooklyn of New York. And you can find that actually on the Catholic Legal Immigration Network website. But thank you again, Maria. It was so powerful. And um, I know this was emotional for you. Yes. And I just thank you so much <laughs> because I think your story is going to touch a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I just want to remind everybody to like and subscribe to our Arkansas Catholic Asks podcast and follow Arkansas Catholic on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, arkansas-catholic.org. And of course, if you're in the parishes, you know, um, pick up a copy of Arkansas Catholic, or of course, we have uh, print and digital subscriptions available. And check back next month for part two of our immigration series on Arkansas Catholic Asks. Thank you for listening.